Our scripture reading today comes from Numbers chapter 4. I'll begin reading in verse 4. The duties of the Kohathites at the tabernacle will relate to the most sacred objects. When the camp moves, Aaron and his sons must enter the tabernacle first to take down the inner curtain and cover the Ark of the Covenant with it. Then they must cover the inner curtain with fine goatskin leather and spread over that a single piece of blue cloth. Finally, they must put the carrying poles of the Ark in place, jumping down to verse 13. They must remove the ashes from the altar for sacrifices and cover the altar with a purple cloth. All the altar utensils, the fire pans, meat forks, shovels, basins, and all the containers must be placed on the cloth, and a covering of fine goatskin leather must be spread over them. Finally, they must put the carrying poles in place. The camp will be ready to move when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the sacred articles. The Kohathites will come and carry these things to the next destination but they must not touch the sacred objects or they will die. So these are the things from the tabernacle that the Kohathites must carry. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Matt. That's right, a scripture reading from Numbers chapter 4. Are you ready for this? I don't think you're ready for this. Today's scripture reading is a list of items that a division of the tribe of Levi had to carry through the wilderness. Some in the congregation have moved into new houses recently, and maybe you had a a visceral reaction to this passage of scripture, all of these objects being listed. Sorry, Ryan and Liz, I know that that's, that's you probably. For others of us, the thought of carrying household items makes us sick to our stomach, especially those of us with kids moving to a new house is like such a daunting prospect. My parents are here today. Um, They recently retired and moved from Kansas to to Iowa. Over the past few months, I would receive an occasional text message from my mom saying, do you want to keep this or that uh, stack of baseball cards or series of young adult novels about a sports hero? And I could sense the weariness in her demeanor, even via text message. And this sense was confirmed when one day after my mom texted me to ask if I wanted to keep a few books, she sent me this picture that will be displayed on the screen. For those those listening to the audio, this is a cartoon depicting an elderly father and his adult son standing beside each other staring into a storage container filled to overflowing uh, with discarded household items and boxes of junk. The father says, one day, son, all this will be yours good, right? I've been reading through numbers recently. Uh, Yes, I am that spiritual. Uh, And this passage in Numbers 4, a bit of which we read a moment ago, caught my attention. So I don't know if the fact that a passage like this caught my attention says more about my brain or about the relative action that occurs in the book of Numbers, but this did catch my attention. You might be thinking, what could possibly be sermon material in a list of packing instructions embedded into an account of an ancient Near Eastern census, to which I would answer we're about to find out together. But I'll start by telling you what caught my attention in this passage, and perhaps it it caught yours as well. Tucked in among this long list of items and prescriptive procedures is this dire warning. Did you catch that? 
Consider the Kohathites' task. They have to carry all the items of the tent of meeting through the wilderness, but here's the catch. They can neither touch nor look at what they are carrying. If they do so, they will die. Did you, did you hear that? In, this, uh, in his translation and commentary of the Hebrew Bible, Robert Alter offers an apt description of the responsibility of the Kohathites by saying, the transportation of the sanctuary from place to place, its disassembling and reassembling, was a moment of acute peril for which our passage makes elaborate provision. I want to zoom out from this a bit. Uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier, this does take place in the context of a census that is called for in Numbers chapter 1. Numbers begins with the very exciting line, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, a census is coming, can you, can you taste it? Take a census of the whole congregation of Israelites in their clans by ancestral houses according to the number of names every male individually. From 20 years old and up, everyone in Israel able to go to war, you and Aaron shall enroll them company by company. So by the time we get to Numbers chapter 4, we've arrived at the census of the Levites, the tribe of the Israelite priesthood, and here we're introduced to the Kohathites. You can imagine the enormity of the task of gathering people and giving assignments for how things will operate in the wilderness. A good portion of Numbers, trust me on this, is devoted to detailing just how much value God places on gathering his people in this case, for a census. Our Old Testament text assigned for today in the lectionary comes not from Numbers, but from Isaiah, and we're presented here with this picture of God doing a, a version of the same thing he instructs Moses and Aaron to do, except that in Isaiah chapter 56, God is gathering outsiders. So we read, Do not let the foreigner join to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. The foreigners who... Join themselves to the Lord, God says through Isaiah in verse 7. He says, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Thus says the Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, I will gather others to them besides those already gathered. Now, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. It was later translated into Greek called the Septuagint, this Greek translation was the version of scriptures read or heard by many of the early Christians. And the Greek word used repeatedly in this passage that comes through in English as gather is the word sunago. So we're getting numbers and Greek today. I can tell the excitement is waning in the room. You can perhaps hear the similarity to the English word synagogue here. Uh, the noun is sunagoge. And again, others can correct my pronunciation. God desires to gather foreigners to his holy mountain. That's what Isaiah is saying. The reference here is to Mount Sinai, the same mountain near which Moses and Aaron are being instructed to gather the people to conduct this census in Numbers chapter 1. You may recall that this is the same mountain where God gives Moses the law earlier in, in the book of Exodus. And in Exodus, access to Mount Sinai is completely restricted. So only Moses can ascend the mountain. But here in Isaiah, strikingly, there's a vision of 
outsiders being invited in, not only being invited in, but being invited, included with the people of Israel and summoned to that holy mountain. So back to Numbers. When Moses and Aaron obey God's instruction, the same word is used. Moses and Aaron took these men who had been designated by name, and on the first day of the second month, they assembled, Sunago, the whole congregation, Sunagoge, together, both in Numbers and in Isaiah, were presented with this picture of God as a gatherer. There are other instances we could point to in the Old Testament from allowances made in the law of Moses for foreigners to be included and cared for to another well-known prophetic oracle earlier in Isaiah, which you may recognize from Isaiah 11. In that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him. The land where he lives will be a glorious place. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to bring back the remnant of his people. He'll raise a flag among the nations and assemble exiles. He'll gather the scattered people of Judah from the ends of the earth. So given all of these Old Testament references, God as a gatherer, perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that when Jesus comes on the scene, we see exactly the same thing happening in Mark chapter 2. When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many gathered around there, excuse me, so many gathered around there that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. So at the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus is doing what God tells Moses and Aaron to do in Numbers. And he's also doing what Isaiah prophesies God will do in Isaiah chapter 56. You with me so far? Uh Uh-oh. I lost literally everyone except for maybe one of you. Okay. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus is the one who gathers the outcasts of Israel from Isaiah chapter 56 and who gathers others to them besides those already gathered. We serve a God who gathers. Having established this, I hope, I don't know if I've established this or not. Having established this, I want to spend the remainder of our time together uh, looking at examples from Scripture of what a faithful response looks like to those of us who serve and follow a God who gathers. What does it look like to faithfully follow a God who gathers? So any attempt to sketch a faithful response must begin from this foundational truth, which is that gathering people to each other and to himself is God's desire and activity. Gathering people is God's desire and activity. So instead of jumping to a list of shoulds and oughts, we need to clearly say that gathering people together results from God's desire and activity before our own. And introverts among us can breathe a sigh of relief here. In Isaiah, God is the one doing the gathering. In Mark, people flock to Jesus because God's power is at work in him to heal. Because gathering people is God's desire and activity, because God is a God of relationship, He invites you and I to participate in that work of gathering. That's what's kind of striking to me, by the way, about the effort to conduct a census in Numbers chapter 1. This is the same God who 
provided a, a, a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day. Uh, he presumably knows all of the numbers that they are trying to discern, and yet he calls for this census. There's an invitation here for Moses and Aaron to participate, even though God presumably already has all of the information at his disposal, right? Am I thinking wrong there? That seems interesting to me. So what does faithful participation look like? If we begin with the truth that God is already at work and our participation is the result of his character and his loving invitation. So how do we faithfully participate with a God who gathers? In a very weird move that I hope will make sense, I want to suggest to you that we might take our cue from the Kohathites. How's that sound? So I know you're all clamoring for me to get back to Numbers 4, and, and here we go. Numbers 4.15. So these are the things that, from the tabernacle that the Kohathites must carry. Here's another Greek word, iro, to raise up, elevate, lift up, take upon oneself to bear for the Israelites in the Sinai wilderness, this is a sacred task, a weighty responsibility, literally. Uh, the Kohathites carry the objects of God's tangible presence around which the people gather. The things they carry serve as a, a visual reminder of God's presence with Israel. He has made them a people. He has gathered them together. Furthermore, these items are used in the sacrificial system so that the people can live in right relationship with God. So what about when Jesus comes on the scene? What do the Kohathites have to do with anything in the New Testament? I'm glad you asked. In the New Testament, this task of participating in God's work of gathering takes shape in a strikingly similar way. Let's return to where we left off in Mark chapter 2 a moment ago. So people are gathering around Jesus, and we read this. And I love the matter-of-factness with which the NLT renders this next verse. While Jesus was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. The same word that's used to describe the task of the Kohathites in the Septuagint, in Numbers 4, is used in Mark 2 to describe what these four men do for their paralyzed friend. So God is at work in Christ to gather people. And our role, I want to submit to you today, our role as participants in his work is to carry others to Jesus that they might experience healing. And in Mark chapter 2, Jesus, of course, does exactly this. He heals the paralytic. And then he gives this instruction to the man he has healed. He says, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And I can't resist this because I did some work in the Greek this week. The word for pick up your mat is the same verb used in verse 3 when the man's friends are said to carry him to Jesus. Isn't that cool? You better nod your head because I forgot a lot of Greek and I needed to remember it this week. One of the things I love about this episode is that it appears to set off a chain reaction in Mark's gospel. So in Mark chapter 6, after Jesus and the disciples had crossed the lake, they landed at Gennesaret. They brought the boat to shore and climbed out. The people recognized Jesus at once, and they ran throughout the whole area carrying sick people on mats to wherever they heard he was. 
all of a sudden, everybody is a Kohathite. Except instead of avoiding contact with the sacred articles they carry lest they die, those in need are carried toward healing. And this is the part where if I were a different kind of preacher, I would start running the aisles. Stephanie, if you're ready to fall out under the power, you okay. Yeah, thank you. The healing recorded in Mark chapter 2 occurs in Capernaum, which is about five kilometers from Gennesaret, where the action of Mark 6 takes place. There's no evidence for this, but bear with me. What if our guy from Mark 2 who's healed is leading the way from Capernaum to Gennesaret to bring sick people to Jesus on mats? If so, this would be the the biblical case for couch to 5K. I'm sorry, I told myself a number of times to to take that out of my notes, but I couldn't resist. (laughs) Getting up from the mat, traveling that five kilometers from Capernaum to Gennesaret. So one way of reading this is that Jesus launches this man's mat-carrying ministry. Isaiah 56 also surfaces here. Uh, God says he'll gather the outcast and hear people in need from villages, cities, and countryside. They're, they're being carried to Jesus. Can you see yourself in this story, perhaps? Have I convinced you to become Kohathites yet? Except for the dying part, maybe. Where are people being carried? They're being carried to God's holy mountain, or in this case, to Jesus for an encounter with the living God made flesh. Another encounter with the living God made flesh happens on a different mount later in Mark's gospel. So come with me to Mark chapter 15, where Jesus has been sentenced to crucifixion. He endures all manner of verbal abuse and is made to carry his cross to Golgotha where he'll be killed. And the beatings Jesus endures are so severe that he cannot carry his cross. He's unable to lift it up. So in verse 21, we read, they compelled a passerby who was coming in from the country to carry his cross. It was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Then they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. When God says in Isaiah 56, I will gather outcasts to my holy mountain, he's talking about Sinai. But could it be that he's also pointing us, with the benefit of a little bit of hindsight, to Golgotha, the hill upon upon which Jesus dies for our sake? And it is up this hill that Simon the Cyrene, an outsider, plays the role of Kohathite carrying the instrument of our redemption through the wilderness toward the holiest of mountains. God is at work to gather people to himself. So how do we faithfully participate? Well, carrying others to Jesus. Yes, but, but what, what does that look like? Maybe you've already got some thoughts swirling in your head. Perhaps our part looks like taking an inventory of the things we're currently carrying and deciding which ones we should let drop so that we can participate in 
God's activity. Or perhaps our part is to offer thanks to God for his goodness or provision or healing and to respond to his invitation to tell our story that it might carry others to Jesus like the man in Mark 2 that I'm convinced shows up again in Mark chapter 6. Perhaps you'd participate in God's activity to gather people to each other and to himself by committing to become a part of a small group, one of the ones that we heard about just a moment ago. Perhaps you'd discern your part as reaching out to build relationship with a neighbor. Perhaps you'd discern your part, what it looks like to faithfully follow the God who gathers to invite people to become a part of this community here at Solid Rock. Maybe take stock of the ways that you've experienced this community as life-giving, sustaining, a place where encounters with God do indeed take place. I can't help but notice that the paralytic is carried by four friends and not just one. Many of our kids are headed back to school this week, so perhaps carrying others to Jesus would affect the way that you interact with your kids in the pickup and drop-off lines at school or the way you approach relationships with other parents or teachers in this coming school year. Perhaps faithful participation uh, looks like carrying the burden of another whether someone you know or, or maybe like Simon the Cyrene with Jesus, someone you've never met. I mean, for all he knew as a passerby, he's being asked or commanded to carry the cross of a murderer or a violent insurrectionist or you name it, a thief. Mark tells us parenthetically that Simon is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Interesting, which maybe implies that Mark's audience of the earliest followers of Jesus would have known Simon's sons. So what if the burdens you assist others in carrying could become a part of your family's legacy? Perhaps faithful participation looks like intercessory prayer, that very specific way of carrying others to Jesus. They might experience him in a new way. A kind of prayer that carries the burdens of your loved ones or perhaps those whom you've never met to Jesus. So as we prepare to approach the table this morning, I'll invite you to stand. And as we do each week, we'll make two lines here down the center aisles. And we'll come forward to receive. To receive. And... Carry back to your seats the broken body of Jesus and his shed blood. As you come forward, you'll hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. And as you do, I wonder if you'd reflect on one of the many ways that we could become participants, faithful followers of the God who gathers. So would you join me at the table of our Lord today?